The year that this week's album was released, Kim Kardashian and Charlie Sheen both went through divorces. Kim from NBA star Chris Humphreys and Charlie Sheen from reality. This week's album is another obscure one, and uh, it's hard to make jokes about something so hard to find, so you aren't getting a clue this week. Sorry. And finally, this week's artist is the mind behind Pedro the Lion and Headphones, the side project, not the little device that lets you listen to music in private. The year was 2011, in its third appearance on our show. The artist is David Bazan, and the album is Strange Negotiations, today on Two Dudes and Tunes. You're listening to Two Dudes and Tunes, the podcast that is back on the horse. I'm one of the two bandits who have hijacked this hour of your life. I'm Chris Robinson. The other more level-headed outlaw across the internet from me is Wood Johnson. Wood, which fictional outlaw are you and why? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I've always thought of myself as a white hat, not a black hat. So, uh, yes, um, that's fair. So which, which sheriff are you then? No, 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 no. I'm going to go with an outlaw, actually, uh, who uh, I feel like Val Kilmer in. Um, ah, in, uh, no, 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 no. I got it. I got it. In Tombstone. Yes, there we go. <laughs> I didn't have it. I really thought I did. <laughs> it was on the tip of my tongue, I promise. Uh, no, seriously though. I feel like the, uh, the guy who's a good gun for hire, who is going to take care of whoever's paying me the most, uh, the longest. So that, that's me. And come on. Nice. With lines like I'll be your huckleberry, uh, just, just sticks with you. I read the story about that phrase. Do you know, I'm sure you do, but do you know the origin of that phrase? I'm your huckleberry. I, I don't. So, um, uh, I, I might be getting this wrong, so somebody could uh, write us an angry email, but I think the handles on the side of a coffin were called huckles, mm-hmm. and so you were a huckle bearer, and I think huckleberry is um, is either something that that character, and I he's like an actual person in history, right? I think yeah, it's something Doc Holliday. That, yeah, I think it's something that Doc Holliday either got wrong or was a colloquialism at the time that, you know, people out in the sticks called them huckleberries instead of hucklebearers, I think. This has nothing to do with huckleberries or hucklebearers, but you using the word colloquialism reminded me. I just finished reading uh, the biography of George Washington by Ron Chernow, I believe. Oh, yeah. yeah. Either Ron Chernow or Walter Isaacson. I can't remember who... Hmm. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. That's basically based on excerpts from Washington's journals and letters and diaries and all the different communications he had. And one of the things the author makes comment about is Washington was really, really bad about colloquialisms. He got 
all sorts of sayings wrong all the time. Also, he was like a, a founding father with a Yogi Berra complex. Yes, exactly. That makes me so happy. That is a great thing <laughs> one, to know about one of George his, Washington. One of his most human traits was he mixed up turns of phrases all the time and people loved him for it because it was oh, just... Oh, man, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. Uh, but anyhow, man, what is new with you this week? Um, You know... I had a bunch of stuff up there on our notes and I took them down because I feel like every what's new this week thing for me is like, I watched something. Mm-hmm. I uh, consumed media. This um, is a media podcast, so it's okay to talk about consuming media. That's true. So in the spirit of consuming media, um, Megan and I went to the theaters uh, Friday she surprised me. She sent me a Marco poll and she was like, Hey, I've got tickets to Dune. We're going to go see it in IMAX tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is one of just a myriad of reasons why my wife is the greatest. Uh, but we went and saw Dune and we're both just absolutely gobsmacked. It was, it was a fun time uh, because for one thing, we got a giant, like, the industrial bucket of movie theater popcorn. The I don't care about living anymore bucket. Yes. Yeah. The like I plan on clogging my arteries and dying tonight bucket of popcorn. <laughs> Challenge and, uh, accepted. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you think I can't eat two of these? <laughs> I'm going to prove you wrong. Well, for $24.99, you better eat two of them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we had to get our money's worth. That and the gallon drum of Coke, as uh, Jim Gaffigan says. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, like I, we were both saying we haven't been to a movie we've liked that much in a while. And we've been to some movies that we've really enjoyed this year already, but like it really just blew our socks off. So that's really, that was thing number one on our list of things that happened recently that were a lot of fun, man. Uh, so that's in my show notes as well. Um, I watched Dune on HBO max from the comfort of my own home. Uh, if it's not TMI, in my underwear where I was comfortable. Uh, and uh, uh, so, A, we all assumed that because yeah, all exactly. of us watch movies that way. Exactly. B, like, uh, no, but it, no, anybody denying that is just in denial. So yeah, much denial. They're, they're liars. They're filthy liars, and they can get over it. But from the comfort of my own recliner with my own home theater system on my 75-inch TV in the dark, where I could pause it and get up and refill my one gallon drum of soda Um, (laughs) and uh, homebrew soda. I like it, man. It has been 10 or 15 years since I have been that in love with a movie from frame one. Like I knew the second the Dune title came on the screen that I was going to be in love with this movie just the way it was shot, the score, just in the first 20 seconds as things are happening. Wow. And Dune is one of those books that was really an awakening experience for me. I read it for the first time when I was 11 years old, which is arguably too young, but we've established that wow. I did things really young. <laughs> uh, and um, it was one of those books that I read because my dad was telling me, oh, you should read this. Like, this is really good. And it's funny, I asked my dad about that this week. Uh, he recommended I watch, I read Dune, and he's never read any of the follow-up books. 
So I've read the complete Dune saga. Uh, my yeah, dad stopped yeah. at the end of Dune. There's a bunch more books that follow the life mm-hmm. of Paul Atreides uh, yeah. and c- his story to its conclusion. And his descendants. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. there you go. It's, yeah. it's it, bananas. It, it is. But the point being, I had really high hopes for this movie. Uh, I was really worried about this movie based on some of the rumors I had heard about it uh, in production Mm. until about a year and a half ago uh, before COVID really locked us down. um, I have the pleasure of kind of working for the parent company of Warner brothers who produced this movie. Mm. And I happened to get to see um, about a 15 minute segment of this film uh, oh, at man, a that's cool at a behind the scenes kind of preview at a like a a, a team event that we had at our headquarters yeah. yeah and oh my goodness i knew it was the uh it was the last 15 minutes of the movie so i won't give away what happens but that was the preview wow. footage for the film and at the time they weren't gonna split it into two films like that was that was a big moment and they were trying to figure out what else to cut out of it whatever they filmed Dang. Yeah, yeah. I'm so happy they're making it two films. I'm so oh, happy that it's already filmed. Like the the whole thing is done. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. So we're good to go for the next one, and it's going to be a continuation. Like I am so jazzed. But anyhow, that's awesome. That's a lot of talk about a movie that I can't really talk about because I don't want to spoil it. But if you read the book, yeah, it follows the book exactly. So it does. Thank you it Hollywood was, for once you got so... it right. It was so funny to watch that, and it was fun to watch Megan mm-hmm. watch the movie because she didn't know anything about what was going to happen, and so it was fun to watch her be surprised when You're you like, know, oh, he did thing A or yeah, yeah, exactly, like yes, that person bites it. Um, and the thing that uh, I'll I'll just throw this out there, and then we can we can actually move on to the album or more small talk or whatever. Um, it was amazing how much of this really dense, complicated lore mm-hmm. he was able to make incredibly easy to understand. There wasn't anything that Megan like leaned over and asked me about. Mm-hmm. Nothing was hard to understand. It was all super evident and obvious like in a good storytelling way yeah um and i was i was it was really fun as somebody who's read the book multiple times to go like man like nothing is missing wrong yeah the stuff that he didn't include didn't need to be in the movie Mm -hmm. you know it really like streamlined the story in a way that made it accessible to people who aren't going to read uh what it's like an 800 page 900 page book. It's not that long, but it's, it's pretty beefy. Yeah. The copy so, I have is like an inch and a half thick. I'm pretty sure if I'm eyeballing it correctly. My most recent read through was kind of cheating. I listened to the audiobook driving to El Paso and it took almost the whole drive there and back. So yeah. 16 and a half, 17 hours of reading time. Uh-huh. Uh, it's long. Yeah. Uh, especially compared to most of the stuff that people read nowadays. My final word on it for right now, I mean, we've got another movie still to come. Mm -hmm. I I hold a trilogy of movies, or really it's six movies now, in really high regard for how faithful they are to their source material, and that's the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. Oh, man, Um, yeah. 
And this is right up there with faithfulness to the original content and the spirit of the creator who, who wrote it. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out really good. And like people that I know who have never read the book at work, um, who would never read the book, who aren't interested in it at all have been talking about it Mm -hmm. because they watched it. So it's, it's the, he, he took a story that I think would be kind of, like inaccessible for a lot of people and made it accessible, which I'm really glad for. So there's a a meme. I know I said that was my last word before, but there's a meme I saw the other day of a guy who like takes a cat and he lays the cat down on a sheet of paper and then he traces around the cat to draw a cat. And it's a really like bad looking cat. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the format. And the, the words are, um, you know, uh, Dune is the name of the cat, and then the guy uh-huh. is stenciling around it. When he lifts it off, it's Star Wars Episode Three or Episode Four. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yep. uh, so that's so funny. It was great. I love it. But anyhow, I do have one more piece of small talk, and the only reason I'm going to go ahead and bring it up is because you uh, you clapped back at it uh, in my uh, in the show <laughs> I notes. Sure did. Uh, and that is, I have been watching Squid Game. And anybody who knows mm-hmm. my beloved bride, Tiffany, she doesn't do anything with suspense. She doesn't do anything like the most she will do with like suspense or like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen is like yeah. cooking shows on Food Network. Uh, that's <laughs> that's enough for suspense for her. Um, who's who's going to win? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So Squid Game has been a show and Dune by extension were things that I had to watch at night after she went to bed when it's dark and all that and in the Mm -hmm. mood for it. And, um, I gotta be honest. I was tweeting about it when I, when I first like live tweeting first, uh, I started watching it and I did not get it. It just sucked in general. Oh man. And there were a lot of reasons why first I, I came to the understanding after really examining myself that I have kind of an ethnocentric focus on the media I consume and the way that the South Korean film producers who produced that show tell a story is different than what I expect to see in general. The other problem that I had with it is Netflix is really dumb default settings, which was, it defaulted to um, replaying, replacing the the spoken language with English, like sub language plus subtitles, which was terrible oh, because awful. Even- yeah, the English dub is garbage. Megan and I played it just for a brief moment with the the mm-hmm. dubs just to see like what is this because we both of us um, enjoy. Uh, like foreign films with I, subtitles. Like I we love, it. love subtitled foreign films. Yeah. Uh, yeah mainly because the I dubs def- for this were atrocious to sum up what you were saying. The dub was terrible. And here's oh, the thing man. that really bugged me is there's no way. And I looked everywhere, both on, I even brought my laptop out to try to change my default settings in Netflix to native language of the content plus English subtitles. And there's no way. So you have to change it for every item that you watch. You have to go up to the menu and change it. It won't just be so no. So not quite that bad. 
like yeah. s- it remembers okay for squid game he wants to listen to the audio track in korean oh and, I but see. if i go watch something else that's dubbed it's going to yeah. default to english dub with <sighs> subtitles and it's like no i want that's and that's awful. not a setting so i was really kind of ticked off at netflix over that i was like you're the ones yeah. who do this to me yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's it i have two episodes to go yeah. Watching the Korean original language version where their actions line up with the sound of their voices in a mm-hmm. way that yeah. is convincing and believable and seeing kind of the way they've shot it. It is good. Yeah. But I still kind of lack the the convincing that it's the phenomenon that everybody's making out of it. There's lots of memeable moments. There's lots of interesting yeah. takes but there's nothing like fresh and original about it yet now i have two two episodes to go i believe i think it's seven episodes or maybe it's eight yeah i got a yeah. couple to go and maybe it'll blow my mind and i'll get some twist that'll be like oh yeah there we go uh but for right now it's just kind of like all right this is entertaining but not everybody you know this isn't game of thrones i see it's interesting to me that you have that take on it cuz it it seems very I don't know. It seems very novel to me. Like, and maybe that's, maybe that's just my limited amount of movie and show watching, but I really have enjoyed all the twists. I love the character development. The like premise is really fascinating to me. Like I I wouldn't say it's like the greatest show ever, Mm -hmm. but I think it's uh, for my money. It was better than good. Um, Megan and I watched it over the span of a week because we were trying to make it last and do an episode a day. And when we got down to the final two episodes, we just watched them because we were like, oh, <laughs> all right, whatever. I don't know what happens. Yeah, exactly. So the premise, I think that's what bugs me the most that everybody's really excited about it. And this is dumb. And I'm about to say this because I can't remember the name of the book, but the premise is basically a deadlift of a book I read in high school. And I've been trying oh. to remember what the name of that book was. And I've looked through boxes. I don't get rid of books. So I have boxes and boxes of books and I've not been able to find it, but I can remember the cover, but I can't remember what the title of the book is or the author. And it's Uh. basically a deadlift from some 1960s um, fiction, you know, sci-fi fiction thing about uh, death squads, basically uh, competing Mm. against each other. So, yeah. So similar. Yeah, it's very similar. And maybe that's why I'm having the hang up like, all right, I've seen this this mechanism in action where people are competing against each other to the yeah. death. Um, they're not necessarily playing children's games, but it's the same kind of everybody's in a prison together, basically, and only the winner gets the prize money that's hanging in a bowl above them kind of uh-huh. thing. Like uh-huh. very key elements. You're like, oh, no, nah, I've read about this before. <laughs> interesting i'm curious uh, if you when you find out what book that was or what short story or whatever let me know because i'm very curious all right i will that's all the small talk i really had for this week like we really dove deep into junk that we watched we we (laughs) went into movie and tv show cast for a little bit you got a freebie yeah isn't that nice yeah, that's like a mini episode in itself, but I think I'm ready to talk about this week's album. Album, So um, why don't you tell me about Pedro the Lion? I mean, Dave Bazan. 
Ah, I see what you did there. Let's do it. Let's dive in. All right, Chris. So here we are on the other side of the intro. Uh, Strange Negotiations by David Bazan. Uh, I believe that's his second solo album released on May 24th, 2011. Why don't you take a couple minutes and tell us why this album was on your list and what it means to you? So this is an album that once again, my wife introduced me to. I'm going to interrupt you there. I'm going to interrupt you there. I've decided the number of times like that belongs on two dudes and tunes. Bingo. Megan introduced me to. Yeah. And I'm going to stop doing this podcast with you. I'm just going to drag Megan onto it. Like, yeah, she, I know she's, she has she's way better musical taste be than here. you do. Uh, well, <laughs> evidently, um, but no, she, um, so the first, the first thing I had ever actually heard by David Bazan was he's got a, uh, I, I would call it an EP because it's, uh, it's like four or five tracks that he does. He recorded, a full band version and then went back and did acoustic versions. So it's really like an eight track album mm-hmm. or, you know, eight or nine track album. Uh, but it's called fewer moving parts. And so that was what I heard first. And I just heard tracks of that on Megan's phone. And that was kind of my exposure to David Bazan for a while from the time we met until like 2015 when we moved up here. And by the time we moved up here, he had released his most recent album, Blanco, mm-hmm. uh, which I really like and almost made the list. But between this one and Strange Negotiations, I picked Strange Negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, I just kind of, I don't know how it is for you sometimes diving into an artist. You sort of listen to things out of order. Mm-hmm. And so I listened to his first album and then all the way to his most recent one. And then it was like, well, I need to fill in the blanks. So I listened to curse your branches and strange negotiations and strange negotiations has really stuck with me, uh, in a way kind of similar to Blanco Mm -hmm. where it's, it's an album that I return to time and time again. It's an album that I don't take off of my phone. Um, but one of the things that really cemented my feelings about David Bazan was a solo show that he did here in Lubbock. Um, Cause the way that David Bazan works, a, a lot of his income that he makes as a musician is doing these house show tours because he's a big believer in the DIY indie rock kind of thing. He doesn't necessarily want to be beholden to a label. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he'll put out feelers before he gets a show, a tour together and says, Hey, I want to do house shows in these locations. Is anybody interested in hosting? And so in 2019, he was on one of these tours and one of Megan and I's friends, Jeffrey, who I've mentioned on the podcast, just out of nowhere was like, Hey, uh, you guys know that David Bazan is doing a solo show here in town. <laughs> Cause he hadn't been on our radar. We were, I think Megan was still in school mm-hmm. and I was just working. Like we didn't really have the money to shell out for concert tickets or not, not necessarily that we didn't have the money, but we didn't have the time. It wasn't you know. in your purview. Yeah, exactly. We weren't, we weren't looking out for it. 
and so we were like, well, yeah, we sure would. And so we bought tickets and, uh, it's kind of funny. We actually now live n- no joke, maybe a block or two blocks from the house that the show was at well, just cool. by pure happenstance. We drive by the house every time, uh, we come home from like work or a restaurant or whatever. Um, <laughs> but when we went to the show, I want to say it was in like November or December. Uh, and dude, it was so cold. Uh, we parked around the block cause you know, it's just in the neighborhood and neither of us for whatever reason had brought a sweater or mm-hmm. a jacket with us. And because it's somebody's house, they have the doors closed and you just kind of sit on their patio Mm-hmm. like making small talk with people until they open the doors. You know, it's just like any show. There's a time when they actually open the doors and let you in. And so we are sitting out there shivering and I was like, man, this had better be the best show in the world because <laughs> I am cold. There are a bunch of people I don't know. I'm an introvert, so I'm not interested in like, so how long have you been listening to David Bazant? Like, yeah. I don't want to make small talk. Don't talk to me. Play the music. Exactly. That is exactly how I felt. But finally, they opened the doors, and we went in, and they had it was it was a little strange. And I guess the they had the people who own this house had used it as a venue for other shows because they had a bunch of like rugs and towels and stuff over the windows, mm-hmm. and had like mood lighting in what was basically like a living room. Yeah. They had just like cleared out all the furniture and stuff. Uh, and so we're just like waiting and everybody's really excited because indie artists like this, like it's not like going to show in the AT&T center where it's a bunch of drunkards who like are there never... to party. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so he came out and it was just David Bazan with an acoustic guitar and a microphone in his signature red hoodie. And it was the best solo acoustic show I have been to, mm-hmm. period. It was so good. Um, because David Bazan is a musician who, and I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about the album, is somebody who is like just imminently comfortable with himself even if maybe there are some things that he struggles with the way all of us do he's somebody who has really thought a lot about the songs he's written um one of the things so i sent you actually uh um an article uh that was an an interview with him from the time of this album's release um i think it was from image magazine or something like that i don't journal Yeah, Image Journal. And he talks about, like, since the way that he makes a lot of his money as an artist is doing solo shows like this, he has to be really comfortable with his songs, and he has to know, like, whatever he's going to be singing for, you know, uh, 40 hours a week or whatever is something that he can stand behind. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's done a great job writing songs that way Uh, because he'll, he'll play a few songs and he'll introduce songs and kind of tell you about where he was at when he was writing them, what his headspace was. Um, And he just kind of randomly has times in his set where he offers up uh, like a question and answer time. Mm -hmm. 
where people legitimately just like, so when you were writing whatever, whatever, what did such and such mean to you? Or, you know, when you were on tour doing this album or whatever, what, uh, what motivated that, you know, like it was a remarkably frank, like open conversation with the audience, which is something I have not heard of or seen mm-hmm. since. Um, and I, I think that really comes through in his albums and it's just made me, I think in general, if I go to an artist's show, I am automatically more attached to that artist's music than I would be otherwise because, you know, I've had a more intimate experience. It's the same thing with City and Color or Coheed and Cambria or, you know, any artists that I've seen live. Mm-hmm. I can automatically recall like, oh, yeah, I went to, you know, Austin to see the helio sequence and they were amazing. And I still listen, you know, like it just engenders you to their music. They're not a bunch of cop outs that could do a studio album and sucked live. So I'm not listening to them anymore. Kind of thing. Exactly. That's exactly right. So that's, that is kind of the story for me with David Bazan and this album specifically. I'm curious how you felt about this. Cause this is more, kind of moody contemplative indie rock and this I, keep, is more... I, I keep forcing this da- uh, down your throat unfortunately i'm calling this genre chris rock nowadays uh <laughs> not the comedian but my bald-headed con- <laughs> counterpart here uh, <laughs> oh man a lot less vulgar than chris rock not that i have a problem with that it's just two different things very different getting but, into uh any any faithful audience of this show will know exactly what I mean when I say this is Chris Rock. Um, <laughs> no, so I'll be honest. I say this a lot with some of your music, and that's, you know, we've got the same kind of pattern here. It's another one of those monochromatic uh, uh, album artworks. It's blue, green, black, and white kind of things going on with it. Yeah. And... Uh, you sold it to me as kind of an indie rock album that's independently produced, self-produced by a guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I was kind of hesitant, as I want to be, with things that are described that way, uh, mainly because I guess I spent enough time around that kind of music to be like, most of this is just trash. Like, why are we even yeah. talking about it? Yeah. I have to say, I do owe you a debt of gratitude for exposing me to music like that, because uh, it's very much outside of the norm for me. Uh, when we look at your list and we look at my list, they're two very different things. That's all rehashing things I've said in the 35 or so episodes before this. Uh, for me, I did not know who David Bazan was. I had heard of uh, his other projects, Um you know, Pedro the Lion, I had heard of headphones, but I didn't know he was a part of those. Mm-hmm. But I could not name any of the songs from either of those groups. If you put a gun to my head and said, pick one, uh, I'd yeah. be lost. So familiar to a name, not necessarily to the content. Yeah. This album is captivating to use a word in that 
it is something totally different from anything else on your list so far. Uh, it captures, whereas some of the other artists that I have had issues with on your list, I think it actually authentically captures the spirit that you're trying to convey when you put those other albums on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not a huge fan of Dallas Green's music. I was not a fan of Emma Ruth Rundle's music. You know, I... I found things to be appreciative to them, but they weren't things that I just listened to and was like, Oh yeah, these are awesome. Yeah. I listened to this two, maybe three times before I even started trying to digest the lyrics, just listen to the music. And I knew it was awesome just from the music by itself and getting into the groove of each one of the songs. And it's funny. My very first impression uh, after listening to this album, the whole way through was, this album sounds like a drummer wrote it. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't you know that uh-huh. David Bazan was a drummer first and learned guitar afterwards. Uh, well, he yeah. played piano first and then he played drums. And so uh-huh. there is something about this music that has a soft, slow, rhythmic pull to it. And it's a disservice to say it's soft rock and it's a disservice to say it's chill rock because there is yeah. a lot of motivation behind what's happening, but it kind of also falls into those sounds in a lot of cases. Yeah. It's also really, really progressive in its tones. I love the authenticity of the guitar tones, the how real it sounds like. It sounds like something that might've been recorded in somebody's living room at a live show in some cases. And that's both a benefit to it and a hindrance to it in my mind from a studio listening experience. Uh, But I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. Um, One of the things that I found interesting while researching this album, uh, sorry to stumble over my words there, uh, was I'm just, I'm trying to get thoughts out. Uh, one of the things I thought that was really interesting was this album's recording time in studio was funded by pre-sales of the finished album. And he was so committed to the idea of creating the album he wanted to create that instead of bringing outside producers in who would influence the tone and the, the lyrics and the content of the album, he reached out to his fan base and said, Hey, I want to make this album. Here's what I have in mind. Would you go out on a lark and buy it from me before it's even created? And based on a couple of demos, he sold enough copies of the album to fund recording the actual album. And that's just awesome to me that that proves that he has a dedicated fan base that is willing to support him despite what's actually out there about him. So I thought that was really cool. Um, why don't we dive a little into the album itself though? Yeah, I, I want to, because you, you kind of hinted at the things that I mentioned. So on, on a surface level, um, the music is one of the first things that caught my ear mm-hmm. about this album. Um, of course I, I was familiar with some of his other stuff and knew that the lyrics were something I wanted to pay attention to, but I think that the music is the thing that, kind of pushed me over the edge with uh, putting this album on our list as opposed to 
doubling up or say putting uh, Blanco on there because Blanco is a, a really excellent album and really fascinating. I, I encourage you to go listen to it mm-hmm. um, if you've got time because it's very different. There's a lot more acoustic guitar. Uh, he uses some synth tones on that album, which is interesting, but this album is just like straight up rock and roll, um, which, you know, uh, is something that sounds kind of like dorky and cliched, but I mean, look at the album, uh, look at the music or listen to the music. Like I, like I said last time, I keep trying to get you to look at the, the idea of sound, look at the sound waves would, um, but you know, there are a lot of heavy guitars and like really good drum grooves. Uh, the tracks wolves at the door level with yourself eating paper. They're all like, like, I don't know, just real driving overdriven guitars, big drums. Uh, I, I like the way that David Bazan records his full band stuff because it's not overly affected. It doesn't sound like there's, you know, they're running it through a bunch of, you know, rack effects or Mm -hmm. anything. It sounds like he plugged his guitar into like a boss OD one cranked that and then cranked up his amplifier and just got like a great loud rock sound. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, he's also capable of quieter moments, too, which I really appreciate. Any any rock band that can be quiet as well as loud, like Led Zeppelin is kind of a, a perfect, if a little cliched example of like, sure, Led Zeppelin 1 and 2 are big and bombastic, but then they hit Led Zeppelin 3 and it was all mandolins and guitars and hurdy-gurdies, like a bunch of, you know, really folksy stuff. Um, and so David Bazan kind of does the like West coast indie rock version of that, where he's got some acoustics, he's got some kind of mournful, clean guitar, um, and these really ballady lyrics. Um, and so I, I just, the, the music and I, I, I don't notice, I don't think. I don't notice production quality as much as you do mm-hmm. to kind of like skip around on the notes a little bit. Um, I don't remember if I complained about um, the white stripes at all, because I didn't think to look that up, but you know, like I'll notice something that's extremely lo-fi, mm-hmm. but to for my money, the production quality of this record kind of hits a sweet spot for me that doesn't feel overproduced. Um, and in some places might even be a little underproduced, but it doesn't, it doesn't really bother me. And I, I think it, for me, it feels more authentic that way. What did you feel about the production quality and those, those aspects of the album? So we've talked about some of these independently produced albums before in the past and how they are, sometimes lacking in the studio level production quality that we would come to expect from something that's going out to millions and millions of people. And that, that 
perspective has shifted over the last 15 years or so since the invention of YouTube and iTunes and all the different media streaming services where, you know, a guy who's relatively talented uh, from a mastering perspective can record something in his living room and put it out to the masses. And if it's a hit, it's a hit. If it's not, it's not. Uh, And a lot of people bemoan kind of that flooding of the market of content that's just absolute trash. You know, you've got to wade through a bunch of junk to get to something that's worth listening to. And we've talked about that before on this podcast. Um, When I think about this album, it's the little things that kind of strike me as being amateurish or less than fully produced. And in the case of this album, I find those things endearing. I was trying to cheat and look up our show notes on some past episodes that we've done. I was particularly critical of um, one of the albums on your list that we did. Uh, I believe it was, it may, I'm pretty sure it was sound and color that I was Mm -hmm. pretty critical of the production quality of their, of their music. Uh, I may be wrong on that um, because it just had this really muddy sounding mess of reverb piled on. And yeah, yeah, I will admit as a once aspiring music producer, I was involved in more than one recording that just sounded, I listen to it now and I cringe. Like what (laughs) was I thinking as the masterer on this album? Like what, who let me do that? That's a crime. <laughs> this is a great song without all of that stuff added into That's it. Funny. And this album has some of those minor things. It has a little bit of that muddy reverb that we talked about last week. Uh, it has a little in uh, three dog night. It has a little bit of that. Just it's not as sharp as some of the things you would expect to hear coming from a studio. Uh, in the modern era and uh, where, where this album is saved, I would say just kind of coming at it is that you can feel the heart that he's coming from. It is obvious that this is a guy that is just pouring his soul out there and you don't even have to listen to the lyrics to understand that he's pouring his soul out there. And that makes those minor flaws, those, those little things disappear because it's coming to you from a period of authenticity and not from a production. Everything's perfect about this. You know, I wonder sometimes if we were to hear a, a Sam Smith or a Beyonce album with as much heart as this has, how many of those musical sins we would hear in their production quality, because at a certain point you lose that authenticity by masking it out and putting in the really, really high-end filters and the really, really mastered look. You lose how real it is in that process. So I would say this album is very refreshing. Uh, It's very Mm -hmm. raw, and this is the wrong word to use, but it's something I thought of, and that's underproduced. They haven't polished it to within an inch of its life. It still has its natural luster. Um. So yeah, um, I think that's great. Uh, I had not done much research on this album uh, prior to 
uh, tonight's recording. And earlier today, you did send me the Image Journal uh, article, which thankfully I got to sit down and read tonight uh, right before dinner. And there was something that really jumped out about it towards the beginning of the article where Image Journal asked um, him or made the comment, you are very open and transparent, especially in your solo music. How does that play out for you at more intimate shows like living rooms? You're playing in a room full of strangers. They know some very personal things about you. What's that like for you as a performer? David Bazan said, and I quote, it feels natural to me. That's something of a value of mine, transparency and genuineness in interpersonal relationships. At some level, that's exciting to me in musical expression too. Not just exposing your own demons or autobiography, but any kind of risk-taking is interesting. It's not draining for me. I'm comfortable with that level of vulnerability at this point. I'm certainly not docked for it. It's not a hardship. In a way, I've been rewarded for it over the years in a way that people respond. And for me, there's something about that mindset that he responded. You know, you start interviewing big musicians or really popular bands, and they're going to give you all sorts of mumbo jumbo, and they're going to have this polished press release type response to their interview questions. And here's a guy who's just like, look, I value transparency and being genuine with my audience no matter what size they are. And you feel that in this album, Strange Negotiations. Um, So that kind of is a wrap from my thoughts on the album as a whole. Uh, I know you have a bunch more stuff about lyrics and stuff, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Yeah, and that's actually a good jumping off point. One of the things in the interview that I didn't put in the notes, but that stuck with me that I remembered, um, so just as some background information, uh, in, in this interview, he talks about this, about how Pedro the Lion became a thing that didn't resemble what he wanted his career to be. Uh, and so that was part of the reason he quit. And I, I don't know the specifics, whether that was the rigorous touring schedule or something to do with labels and money as it very often is because creators are very often the first people to get screwed when something goes sideways monetarily speaking. Um, But he had a friend uh, T.W. Walsh whose music I've listened to and really enjoy who was part of Pedro the Lion with the band and this kind of coincided with his fallout with the church and with being a Christian. He he doesn't identify as a Christian anymore. Um, And it's, it's one of the things he addresses in this album uh, that makes me connect to it. Well, I, I definitely um, still have a, a faith and still believe there are some things he points out with the church that I find really frustrating. And one of the things he said in that interview was that the example he gave is, you know, the church points at a tree and says, this is an apple tree. And then you look up at the tree and uh, it's not yielding apples, it's yielding cherries. And all that is to say the point he's making is he wants 
the fruit that he claims to bear in his life, the way he lives his life, his interactions with people to be uh, honest and to have integrity. And that's one of the things that he explores in this album, uh, kind of on more of a side of being a human and some of the political realities of that. Um, and not so much maybe the religious one, but it's something he finds a way to express in his lyrics on this album uh, that I find really interesting. In that in that article, he said, I, I took a little excerpt uh, from it about writing about politics and religion. Uh, he says, uh, I decided I'd keep reading about this stuff, the, the issues that he is passionate about, and getting mad about it and hope that my subconscious would let it leak into the record in a way that is more genuine and less on the nose. And that's something that I really resonate with and have realized that's something I try and do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and not to make this about me, but I have found in my life that that approach is way better than getting mad about something that I read about and disagree with and then going and writing about it right away. Because what you wind up with is like mind Kampf. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if we're being honest about it, yeah. Uh, maybe if he had had some time to like think and, and live some life, but, but that's an entirely different podcast, but um, uh, it, it's that, that is an aesthetic that runs throughout this whole album. There's stuff that I think if you read about David Bazan and his, uh, his views on life and justice and God and those sorts of things, it's, it, it's obvious enough without being like really bad tent preachery kind of stuff. Um, like the song Wolves at the Door is one of my favorites on this record. It's the opener on the record. Um, and he talks a lot about in this album, kind of his complicated relationship with people in the church. One of the things that he made explicit in the interview that I I had never thought about is even though he doesn't identify as a Christian, he spent his whole life in that culture, in the culture of, you know, basically the Western United States evangelical church. Mm -hmm. And so the way he articulates that is so, um, so Frank, the chorus to that song rolls at the door and you're going to have to bleep here so sorry i'm giving you an editing task uh but he says you're a goddamn fool and i love you that's so a line that he repeats i think twice throughout each mm-hmm. chorus um but in addition to talking about his own complicated relationship with the church he also has some things to say about the church's shortcomings and and i think you know this you could probably read into this any in any number of critiques of any human problem. Um, I think on this album, uh, at least from the research I've done, he's, he's almost taking more of a political look at things. But anyway, um, he says, look into your eyes, your former glory, bright and open wide like Easter morning, how the light has dimmed and how the fear of everything is creeping in. Um, 
you know, that's, that's a, a, a sentiment that has very specific intent. He mentions Easter morning uh, and he mentions the fear of everything, which you could read into as the church kind of shying away from things that it doesn't like or doesn't understand, or even thinks, uh, you know, is sinful, whatever your interpretation of that is. Um, but he's not writing some sort of like poorly worded, like, you know, it's not like a bad Bob Dylan protest song or something. You know, I, I, I love that song, uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is, you know, he frames it almost from like a fairy tale perspective, right? Mm -hmm. The wolves at the door, you know, you think of the, the big bad wolf or a wolf in sheep's clothing or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I just like that. That's kind of a, a, a look at one specific song. Um, but I, I just didn't, I enjoy and I don't even know if enjoy is the right word, but I resonate with how he feels about some things. And I, I like the way that he puts them because he's not, he's not trying to hammer an opinion into your door, like the 99 theses or anything, mm-hmm. um, but he's being frank about it. Also, it's kind of a, it's got to be a tough, a tough line to toe trying to say what you want to say, but also not turn into like a tent revival preacher about it. And it's something he mentions in the interview uh, that I really liked about this album. What did you, did, what about the lyrics? Did the lyrics stick out to you or was that something that you kind of noticed secondarily? What was your, your take on the lyrics? So one of the, one of the things about the lyrics that um, I found interesting at first is he uses his voice as an instrument to the, the underlying music. It is a supporting character to that driving tone that he's creating. Um, it's almost like water rushing over whatever he's, he's playing. And so you tend to gloss over his lyrics at first because of that. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like he's tonally using his voice as an instrument more than a messenger on top of the music. And that's yeah. a, an attribute that we've noted before that I've really been pleasantly surprised by, especially from independent artists. Mm-hmm. And um, I really did a poor job of sitting down and really understanding his lyrics at first. Um I wasn't reading them. I wasn't trying to pick them out. I was really guilty of listening to this song while driving in rush hour traffic. Uh, I have about a 45 minute commute in the mornings. And this was an album that I'd put on in about 45 minutes to an hour in, I'd be pulling into my office and I'd be on to the next thing. Yeah. And I finally sat down. Let me, let me interrupt and just say like, I listen to these albums on the forklift at work. Yeah. Like, I, I think most people, I, I, I don't think we should worry too much about that because most people are listening to music. That's how you consume music in life, at least in the modern era, is like life is happening and you are just trying to like take some music in while you do it. You well, know? And to that point, though, your focus isn't on the music. 
You're yeah. worried about, yeah. okay, that idiot over there that tried to merge into my lane three times and I've got these <laughs> six meetings today and I have to justify somebody's salary for next year and all these yeah. other like pressures that in that drive to work, you're like, oh my gosh, I have these 20 things that I've got to get done today. And if not, if one of them gets dropped, like the week is ruined, I'm going to be on an escalation mm-hmm. list and all that. So you aren't really listening to music. Music is setting the mood for what else is going on in your mind versus when I come up here in my office and I sit down in front of my studio monitors and I put the album on and I just really think about the album. It has my whole attention. There's a difference to having something on and then letting it have your whole attention. And when you put this album on and you have its whole attention or give it your whole attention, it is something entirely different than just the thing you listen to in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a complexity to the ideas that he is conveying without being an over the top, just nuisance kind of to your point. And I guess tent revival preacher and nuisance are the same thing in my mind. Uh, (laughs) Shut up and go away. Like I'm good. Uh, We have Jesus in this house. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and um, it's just, there's a real heartwarming struggle that's going on there. And I did end up listening to his earlier album because of this when I read yep. that it had more to do with his struggles with his faith. And I'm really glad you sent me that article um, earlier today. And I, I just... I hadn't done a whole lot of research on it and I'd kind of wondered about, you know, where he ended up in life. And the thing that I found the most heartening from that article as a man who I have a lot of trouble with quote the church, but no trouble with Jesus or Christianity in its truest mm-hmm. form. I have yeah. severe trouble with the church as it is today. And because of that, I guess I'm perceived as a heretic or whatever by whoever wants to perceive it that way. Spanish Inquisition, whom nobody expects. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Um, You said it, I had to say it. Um, Yeah, yeah. But saying all of that, to read his interview this evening and see you know, him use the phrase, you know, the, the article I think was trying to bait him into like swearing off Christianity or swearing off religion in general and trying to like get him in a catch 22. And he Uh said something to the effect of, and I'm totally going to mess this up, but something to the effect of, I grew up with those people. They're still my friends and I'm still incredibly inquisitive about what they believe and how they believe And it's not out of the question that I will believe that again someday or some variation of that. But where I am right now is right here. And that's the music that I'm writing and releasing. And so he has this unreal understanding of what it is to be a person on a journey. And this is just the moment in the journey that I'm on right now. And you get that in this album when you listen to his lyrics. And I just... I'm blown away by how real it is. You know, I'm, I'm a senior manager for a a massive corporation. I have a huge team of people who work for me and we talk on and on and on about wanting to be transparent and being radically candid with each other and having 
real honest connection with each other. And it all ends up being just this shameful facsimile of reality. And then you've got a guy like David Bazan who's releasing albums 10 years ago that just hit the nail so far on the head in ways that I only wish I was half as articulate to do. Um, yeah. It's just amazing. I That's an early review for you, but it is amazing uh, on that front. Well, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it worked out that we've, we've kept having delays in our show where we get to spend time with some of these albums. Uh, because I, I, I really, that was the thing that I was hoping you would get to connect with on this album is the, the richness of the lyrics. And I'm going to interrupt you for a second on that. I knew I loved this album the second time I listened to it all the way through. I did not need an extra five minutes with it. If we had recorded this a month ago when this album was picked, I would have been, I would have felt the same way. Uh, I've had more time to be more thoughtful about it, but other than, yeah, man, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, I mean, there's not that much more uh, to say. I think we could probably safely move on to critical reception, but yeah, it's, it, it is refreshing and it's interesting to me that in an, in a time where we think that social media has given us all an ultimate voice it's given us a platform with which to speak we have a platform but having a platform and being honest and exploring issues are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what makes this album so rich is that David Bazan is interested in exploring questions that to a certain extent, people on both sides of the God, no God debate have written off. One of the things that the interviewer mentions in this article is that David Bazan, his critiques of the church and of Christianity are a lot easier to hear and consume than somebody like say a Carl Sagan or whoever is because for one thing, the call is coming from inside the house, right? Like Mm -hmm. he's been there, but also he is not so strident and one-sided to say like, look, none of these things are possible. This is dumb, but he also does not want to just, consume an idea completely without saying like, well, let's like examine what it really means Mm -hmm. when we claim that God is both omnipotent and benevolent. What does it mean that the coming of Christ is the ultimate justice for people? Um, And while I fall on a different side of the debate of that than he does, I appreciate that he wants to have that discussion instead of, trying to say like, look, you're wrong and you're stupid and here are 10 reasons why in this album. Yeah. Um, And so I I think my string has finally run in and we can talk about critical reception, but I appreciate that candor from him and it makes for really engaging music. Well, Chris, let's talk critical reception. Uh, What did you find for this independently produced album? Well, uh, I didn't, 
I I don't know if this was me being lazy and typing up show notes at the last minute. It was probably some of that. Uh, but really, the the review from Paste Magazine, written by Andy Whitman, that was what kind of stuck out to me. He said, his songwriting has always featured a remarkable honesty, a discomforting vulnerability that is equal parts hard-won wisdom and self-loathing. And I think that sums this album up. We didn't talk very much about his examination of self in this album, but that is also an excellent part of it. Um, the song Don't Change is basically his like, I need to change, but I'm comfortable mm-hmm. where I'm at now. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, a, a lot of the reviews for this album were positive. I don't think I read anything that was that was negative about it. Did you, maybe you found, maybe you found something where I did not. No, I found that this album was covered by uh, NPR's all things considered, which is kind of the, the zeitgeist of up and coming music. And then, you know, AV club gave the album a B overall. Um, and then I thought it was kind of interesting. One of the things uh, that I kind of look to is, well, how did this album perform commercially? And it did end up peaking at number 32 on the Billboard uh, tracker for top rock albums of 2011. So it did make it into somewhat of a prominent uh, area in the even in the Billboard kind of eyes, which that's a very watered down like we've got to have the most accessible rock music possible to make it to number one. So yeah. The fact that it made it that high up of the chart uh, is impressive in its own right because it is a very acquired taste for a very specific audience, uh, more particularly being people who would go watch him in a house in Lubbock with the windows covered, which (laughs) sounds like a murder scene waiting to happen, Chris. Let's be honest. Uh, It it looked like one because, like, (laughs) I don't know how often you've looked at the rooms of your house without furniture Furniture, probably just the one time you looked through yeah um it it was it was good because of the people the The house you didn't want to talk to by the way yeah well it was because that's a personal failing that's not any problem with the fans they were all perfectly good people and one of the things that was great about that show is everybody wanted to be there Mm -hmm. and so there wasn't the like you know nokia cell phone ring in the middle of a song like if that had happened i'm sure everybody would have just like turned Imposter, very jump slowly that man. yeah <laughs> throw this man out of here but um yeah it was it was a spooky scene in just the house it would have been good for uh the halloween season that we're currently in <laughs> uh if it weren't for the amazing music That's awesome. being uh played well are you ready for your review i think i'm ready man let's do this thing all right sounds good all right chris so as everybody has come to love on this show we rate the uh, albums that we review on a one to six guitar string model uh one string being just i don't know like the first season of star trek the next generation it's Okay, but the cardboard <laughs> sets are terrible. The acting is terrible. It's just, it's not good. We love it for yeah. what it is, but it's not good. Uh, uh-huh. And then uh, I'm going to go with the sixth string is the new Dune film uh, to tie it back yeah, to something earlier. Just absolute cinematic masterpiece. Uh, so 
that said, one to six strings for me, 2011, 2011, 2011's uh, Strange Negotiations by Dave Bazan. I was fully prepared to hate this album. Uh, I don't like the artwork, which is something we didn't talk about. It just, it looks like every other album that came out by an independent artist in the early 2010s. Uh, it's independently produced, and I'll be honest, independently produced albums are a crapshoot. You keep praying for a seven when you throw those dice, and 95% of the time your heart ends up broken and you lose your mortgage. Uh, it's just not a good thing to be doing uh, with your time and money. This album does have all the stereotypical things that you would find on an independently produced album or a self-produced album. It's got those EQ things that just aren't right. The effects kind of sound hollow. It's got a lot of reverb that doesn't belong there. It just sounds amateur in some aspects, but that's being way too hard on it to even think about where we're going with this. This album has more heart in its production than just about anything that's come out in the last 20 years. It has a very real life to the instrumentation. It has a soul in the vocals. This album comes to life as you listen to it and you get to know it more and more. And that's something that I think is just amazing. You can enjoy this album driving in your car and not really paying attention to it. And you can really dive in and fall in love with it when you listen to it dedicatedly. Um, David Bazan's voice is unique. And normally when I say unique, that's a bad thing, but not in this case. It's really special. It is something that exists in its own kind of world. You can feel the emotion that he is trying to convey through the way he uses his voice. And it builds into the music in a way that is just so, so good. I wish half the content we covered on this show, even from my list, was half as good as this is. Uh, we've seen a lot of albums that are really well produced. We've listened to, uh, at this point, 36 other contenders uh, moving through our lists. And... I would throw out most of them in favor of this album uh, if I had to pick and choose. This album drives me. It, I feel alive with it, and it it's like tagging along with that older brother that you just want to be cool enough to be with. Um, it's very personal. So with that said, this is just like a bullet point speed review uh, for me. I've got to say... I'm giving this the full six strings uh, because Bazan has carried this album in a way that we could only appreciate and wish and aspire to. Um, so he is willing, he's transparent. He is the kind of you know model that we wish we could be in a lot of different ways. And I got to give it to him. He's earned my respect as a musician and as a storyteller. and. Uh, I, uh, I'm a, con a convert, if you will, uh, to use one of his phrases that he uses pretty often. So Chris, what was your review? So I, um, I kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, but you know, I have, I think like a lot of people our age, a lot of frustrations with 
um, the American Christian church. Mm-hmm. And David Bazan, in, in that interview, uh, he'll be the first to say his questions about the church stem from doctrinal stuff and things in the Bible and not with the people. Uh, but he still has a lot of skill in articulating kind of the frustrations um, with being being part of a religion and part of a group of people who believe a certain way. And it, it's a thing that I don't think I've heard anybody else articulate in the way that he does. Mm-hmm. And not only does he articulate those things lyrically, uh, but, you know, it, the the set dressing, if you want to call it that, the music is fantastic. The music really draws you in and is listenable. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, the thing I thought of when you were talking about it in your review is that jazz is this way. Jazz is this music that has a lot of complexity, a lot of uh, nuance. But you can throw it on at a cocktail party. You can listen to Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, or you can listen to Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. And I really think that is the way uh, that Strange Negotiations is. David Bazan is an artist that Megan and I put on, like if we're fixing dinner and want something to listen to, but we don't want to listen to anything too high energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, the things that he says, he says in style, he's got this really true in my mind, rock and roll core of this thing. There's loud guitars there's drums and bass and something we didn't touch on too much, but that I want to just mention briefly. When you have a really talented musician playing all the instruments, there's a special kind of chemistry to that, even though it's just the one guy. If you look at like the Foo Fighters very first album, their self-titled album, that was all stuff that Dave Grohl laid down all the parts, Mm -hmm. drums, bass, guitars, vocals. And so there's this like tightness and this coherence to the whole thing, both stylistically and just mechanically with all the parts that I, uh, I am really a sucker for that, like DIY indie aesthetic. Um, another thing that we didn't talk about too much that I'll just mention quickly. Uh, David Bazan's voice is excellent. It like is. it's one of those things you could listen to this record and think like, Oh, I wonder how good he is live. He fills a room. His voice is earnest. He's got this beautiful kind of raspy, reedy tenor, but he can also get loud and shout about it. Um, and so I, I just, I, I love this album. And it, I know that I have been kind of crowding the field with six string reviews. So hopefully nobody is basing their currency on six string reviews. We've kind of made jokes about that before. If you're going to, if you're going to have a gold standard based on our reviews, it needs to be off the one strings because I think those don't even exist. So maybe like two and a half or three, but I have to give this uh six out of six strings uh, because he paired 
this fun rock and roll style with having something super meaningful to say. Well, I appreciate you putting it on your list and exposing me to it. Um, that said, I need you to do the most painful thing on this episode, and that is tell me what your favorite track was and what your least favorite track was. Yeah. Uh, so my favorite track is the tune People. Um, it It kind of sums up the problem of being in... I mean, really just in a general sense, being in relationship with people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but not only is the lyrical content good, which we've gone on ad nauseum about, uh, but the music is really good. That song specifically has a riff that's in like a weird time signature that I can't quite figure out. Mm -hmm. And I really like that in an album that is as straight ahead sonically, mm -hmm. he can still throw in this weird thing that has kind of a hitch in its giddy up that makes me think and makes me sit there in my car and try and find V one of each measure and figure out what he's doing. So that has to be my favorite track. What about you? What was your favorite? There's really a lot to like on this album and I struggled with picking one, um, especially since I was so unfamiliar with it and I'm going to probably take the cop out and I'm going to take the title single strange negotiations it's a phenomenal track from just a pure rock and roll standpoint. It has a riff that hits me in all the right places. It feels like the kind of tune that I would set a montage of my life in my early twenties to a lot of the same thinking and things that I thought of uh, in those earlier years of my life. Um, just, I didn't have as much trouble as he puts in that song but I feel like I identify with it in a way that's more real than any of the other tracks on the album. So that's by a narrow yeah. margin, my favorite track. Uh, what was awesome. your least favorite? So my least favorite was probably messes. Um, and, and like, I, I like all the songs on this album, but if I had to pick a least favorite, it would be that one. Uh, just because it kind of feels it feels like it belongs maybe on a different album, either before or after this one. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the guitar tones are like kind of slightly different. It's not quite as much of the like driving distortion or kind of like softer acoustic or clean tone stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's just kind of, it, it's kind of an oddball song. It has an, a really abrupt ending. It's got a cold ending. Uh, it has a really strange key change throughout it where he kind of like kind of drifts back and forth between two different keys that are really closely related. So like from a music theory perspective, it's interesting. It just kind of feels a little out of place to me. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I picked it as my least favorite. And like I said, least favorite is relative. Like I like the song, but it just felt a little out of place. Yeah. And what about you? What was your, your least favorite? Well, as a wrap up to that, Messes was in the running for being my least favorite. Um, so we do have that in common in more albums than not. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Messes and the song Eating Paper uh, are the only tracks that are not predominantly authored by David Bazan. They have a different, and I can't remember, I didn't write it down, a different author um, attributed to them. 
And I wonder if that's not what you're feeling a little bit of is it's not really his yeah. message. Um, he, I imagine he co-wrote like he a lot of songwriters. No. He, he writes it with a ton of people. But so on the, on the track listing for the, the liner notes or whatever on Wikipedia, it's those two tracks that have somebody else and then slash David Bazan. Interesting. And so I just thought that, and whereas the rest of them are literally just David Bazan. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, one oh, man right. show. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. For I me, right. for me, my least favorite, um, I feel like the weakest track on the album is won't let go. Um, vocally it's the one that kind of wanders and I feel like that's the one that feels the least put together musically and vocally. There's just a disharmony between what's going on musically and what he's doing with his voice. And it's the one that is just like evidently independently produced, almost like he didn't quite finish that track and it just got tagged onto the album. Um, Yeah. So I think that's the one that, if I have to pick one is going to be the one now I will say, I think the message of that song is phenomenal. I think the, the idea that he's trying to convey is supported by that methodology. Uh, it just doesn't fit with the rest of the album. So that's going to be mine. I can dig it. I can dig it. Well, we have done our due diligence oh we've got a new segment yeah we haven't done our due diligence you've got something to do here we haven't crossed the finish line uh in a word chris tell me what is this album all right so the word that i think best sums up this album is the word frank uh you know we we've talked about a lot uh uh coming to the end here i can do it we've talked a lot about honesty um, you know, much in the same way that Billy Joel has talked about honesty. We have talked about it being a rare commodity and something super important. And, and I think more than just honesty is the frankness, the very direct kind of way that he talks about these issues. Um, and, you know, there is some abstraction and some artistic kind of dressing but I think if you listen to these lyrics, even for just a couple of playthroughs of the album, you find that he's being very direct about some very specific things. And I like that frankness. So uh, it's going to be frank for me. Not the delicious ballpark hot dog, not Danny DeVito's character from Arrested Development, but. Uh, oh, 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 I'm not letting <laughs> that slide. It's Danny DeVito's character from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh no! Oh, I'm not so cutting that close. out. Uh, I stumbled right at you. the finish line. <laughs> Whenever you see some college running back start celebrating and then get tripped up at the one yard line, think of me. Um, but what was what was your word for uh, this album? So unlike you and your one word, uh, I'm gonna pick unimpeachable. No, um, I like it. (laughs) I really did seriously though, waffle back and forth on different variations of the word pure and authentic, uh, and just a whole bunch of other things. And unpeachable really seems to be unimpeachable seems to be the word that just keeps coming to the top for me. And not because this album is perfect. It's not, there are a lot of failings with this album, 
but the heart behind this message, the the truth that David Bazan is trying to convey is unimpeachable. And so that's where I'm landing with that. I love it. I love it. All right. I jumped the gun once. I'm not going to do it again. Now we can move on. Let's see what the Oracle has in store for us next week. Let's see if I can uh, summon her correctly. All right, Chris. So from my list, number seven, which is um, 1968's The Beatles' White Album. Oh, yeah. Going big time. Going old school. I am super excited. I believe, and I may be wrong on this. Isn't this like the greatest selling album of like all time? Like, it's, it has got to be up there. Um, I'm not sure exactly, but man, it's got to be in the top 10 at the very least. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. This is one of those albums that, I listened to early and often in my early years, so it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm putting this on my phone right now. <laughs> Perfect. Super excited. There was a uh, uh, a road trip that Megan and I took early in the first like year or so of our marriage where we went on a spring break trip to visit her parents, who at the time lived in Rusk, Texas, which is out in the Piney Woods, uh, so out there in the forest. And we listened to nothing but Beatles albums on that road trip from McPherson all the way to uh, Texas. And it was fantastic. So I have very fond memories attached to the White Album. Nice. Looking forward to it, man. Man, I am too. Well, folks, thank you so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our show, please rate it and review it. Uh, those kinds of things are not only good for our egos because we get to read our names. And as science will tell you, the sound that is most pleasing to you is the sound of your own name. Uh, but it also gives us some visibility on, uh, I think, specifically Apple Podcasts. It's like a, a way that they know who to promote and who to, who to stuff. So uh, give us a comment. And also, you might get to hear your name read in public on the internet we would love to review read reviews or comments on air i don't i don't know do, do we have any because i feel like we haven't had any lately we haven't had any for a while but we have had some so we will keep continuing to do it when they pop up uh yeah. if you want to get in touch with us you can shoot us an email at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com and don't forget to hit us up on Instagram or Facebook. Tell us what you thought about Strange Negotiations. And don't forget to tune in next Wednesday when we dive full on into Beatlemania and Rocky Raccoon learns that happiness is a warm gun. We'll see you next time on Two Dudes and Tunes. <laughs>